You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy.
hunted down the lion. My guest this morning is Dr. Brian Boxer-Wachler. He's a practicing ophthalmologist and eye surgeon. And he's the author of a very interesting new book, Perceptual Intelligence, The Brain's Secret to Seeing Past Illusion, Misperception, and Self-Deception. Your new book is Perceptual Intelligence, The Brain's Secret to Seeing Past Illusion, Misperception, and Self-Deception. At the beginning, you quote Albert Einstein, quote, reality is an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. You're a practicing ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, so you have a unique perspective on perception. So before we get into just what perceptual intelligence is, how did you get into this notion of perceptual intelligence and was there some defining moment or event that triggered or inspired this? I have to take you back to when I was in sixth grade in elementary school where I secretly checked out from the library Judy Bloom's classic, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret?, a coming-of-age book for, for girls, teenagers, and I was just curious how the mind of the opposite sex worked. And so I had this curiosity in college at UCLA. I was a psychobiology major because I wanted to better understand the inner workings of the brain and the mind. Then I became an ophthalmologist. I always wanted to be a doctor to help people. And it was in 2014 in Sochi, Russia, for the Winter Olympics, where I was there to support my friend and patient, Stephen Holcomb, who's the U.S. gold medal winning bobsledder. And he has a condition of his eyes called keratoconus, which is where the cornea bulges out, causes a lot of distortions. I treated his keratoconus and restored his vision. That's what enabled him to come back and win that gold medal at the Vancouver Olympics in 2010. So when I was in Sochi in 2014, I witnessed more than Stephen winning two Olympic bronze medals in bobsled, but I also saw how Vladimir Putin was manipulating the world's perception of himself compared to what he was really doing. And that's when this concept of reality versus fantasy perception came into play, and that's when I started writing. Well, this is a fascinating topic. I've always been fascinated by it. I've never heard the term perceptual intelligence, though. We're all familiar with emotional intelligence, and there's a new field of embodied knowing or embodied intelligence. So what is this thing that you're calling perceptual intelligence? 
Perceptual intelligence is how we interpret our experiences to separate fantasy from reality. In a way, it's like having a built-in BS detector in our heads to be able to make better, smarter decisions in our life. And it's not always easy because we have other factors that are always operating in our backgrounds of our mind, number one being emotions, and also there's cultural upbringing, how we were raised and parented when we were younger, and even DNA and even religious beliefs can alter how we perceive what's around us. Yeah, it's a major challenge. You talk about high perceptual intelligence and low perceptual intelligence and our conditioning as you were just referring to many elements of conditioning that we're subject to has this incredible effect of clouding our judgment and filtering or affecting the way we see the world around us in fact there's this very well-known quote that we don't see the world as it is we see the world as we are Mm-hmm. And this notion of being able to s- separate illusion from reality, that just seems like a very tall order. For our brains, it's a big order because we're constantly being exposed to information, and especially with access now to the Internet, social media, YouTube, etc., we have so much information at our fingertips and it's, it's not just information, but you can have tabs upon tabs upon tabs in your browser and flipping between various sources of information, too. And the book explains a lot of very poignant examples to help people better understand this because that's what the book's goal is. And from the feedback we're getting, which has been really great, I think the book is accomplishing what it was set out to do for the most part. And I'll give you an example even um, just right now that's a kind of very entertaining story but makes a point, which is people who have very strong religious upbringings, they can see religious figures in all sorts of objects, including the Virgin Mary, in some very unusual places. And it's actually because of a condition called pareidolia. And it's something we've all experienced. I think everybody at some point has looked up in the clouds and seen a face or some object, and that's what it's like. It's pareidolia is where we're seeing faces and objects. People who have strong religious upbringings or who have just later in life developed a very strong faith are primed to see the likes of the Virgin Mary in, for example, the skillet burns of a grilled cheese sandwich and pay $28,000 for it, which is a true story which happened on eBay. A sandwich that looked like the Virgin Mary and the Skillet Burns was auctioned off for $28,000. And this is not the domain just of the Virgin Mary, though. There have been a number of Jesus sightings, too, including on, you might remember the Cheetos, the chips? Do you remember those? That one I never heard of. I've, I've heard lots of other stories, but I'm not familiar with that one, except from reading your book. So even on a Cheeto... Jesus has been seen, um, or as I like to say, Jesus, if you prefer. Uh-huh. So this is reflecting how people's own religious upbringing and beliefs is superimposed on objects. And of course, Virgin Mary is really not on the skillet burns, but people believe that and reflected in how much somebody will pay. And 
you write about and other people have talked about the perception of the UFO phenomenon has been explained using the same basic principle. UFOs are interesting because some people have these types of dreams that, in a way, it's what sci-fi they like to watch, especially when people are younger. They can wake up in the middle of the night and believe that they've you know, seen an alien or been abducted when what's really happening is that, and I use an example of an acquaintance of mine who was a big Star Trek fan and woke up and thought there was an alien you know, outside you know, the window of his bedroom. And that, that is not occurring because it's the influence of the subconscious when people are dreaming and wake up and, and believe that they've experienced something like that or they've been abducted. But on the other hand, in the book, I talk about a, a story, a very real story, when I was with my wife on vacation in Peru, and we had a just terrific tour guide we were with for a week who was a very educated woman, credible. She's been a professional tour guide for decades. And she told me about a story of a gentleman who uh, I met after I wrote the book because I was just so interested to just meet somebody um, like this and make my own opinions. And on the tour down in Machu Picchu, you know, they were, were joking and he said, because, you know, he had said he was deposited here from another planet. And she, of course, you know, was making fun of him. And he says, well, tomorrow my friends are going to come visit. And so... The next day, they were climbing a mountain just that's right across the valley from Machu Picchu called Huayna Picchu. And he points over to this area right next to Machu Picchu, looking across the valley from where they were on the other mountain. And there's a gigantic sphere that's just oscillating back and forth in front of the mountain. And all the other tourists around there were taking pictures and video, and it was you know, one of these things that just can't be explained. And, you know, she was clearly awake. She wasn't dreaming or waking up. This was a real experience she observed. And so that leaves the door open for, you know, was that really a UFO? We don't know. But, but clearly that wasn't a dark, lucid dream, which is what can explain UFOs um, in some cases. Well, since you brought up dark, lucid dreams, why don't you explain what those are? So that's when we are dreaming and we have the sense um, when we wake up and, and there, there's something, there's like a person or and a lot of people can, can relate to maybe they have a dream and they're, and they're so terrified that in their dream they can't speak. They, they can't yell, trying to yell for help and you just can't, you're silenced. And you wake up and it takes a few seconds to, to realize, oh my gosh, that's not real. Like I just had a dream, but it seems so real. And that's what that is. Along with what you were just saying about there are situations that are unexplainable. There, were, I believe it was a Harvard researcher who was studying some of the claims of UFO observers and abductees. And one of the arguments he made against the conditioning argument is that many of the ones that he documented occurred before there was any of that kind of stuff in the media or in movies. Mm -hmm. So it is a pretty gray area. And I think the book clearly leaves that end open. 
And I like that you do that. I think that's an important aspect of critical thinking is that we have to be critical of our tendency to deny things and to, to try and insist upon being certain about everything. And there's, there's someone else who I know personally, and I can tell you that this person and his, um, another friend were down about 10 years at NASA and they were on their way to NASA. And this is somebody who I trust implicitly and would have no, no reason to believe that this was fabricated. And there was a very bright sphere in the sky that they were seeing as they were driving towards NASA. And it had been there for, it seemed like several minutes. And when they finally arrived at NASA, someone came out with a shotgun in a truck and was questioning them and what they saw. And I think out of fear, you know, they they said, we didn't see anything because they took their IDs and it was, it wasn't like a person employed by me. It was like somebody in an unmarked type of truck. And they were pretty fearful for their lives because it just seemed like they were wanting to identify if they had seen what they had seen in the sky. So, um, you know, clearly they saw something very unusual that was um, not in the ordinary. Yeah, the world is full of unusual and unexplainable things. But getting back to perceptual intelligence, you ask a question, does the brain make perception or does perception make the brain? It works both ways because people in terms of how they are raised and other factors that can bias their opinions, you know, that perception can make what their brain perceives. But also there are anatomical conditions of the brain, medical conditions, um, pathology that can affect the brain's ability to perceive. One thing that is an example that we all experience is we actually have a blind spot in each eye because of in the retina, the back of the eye, where all the optic nerve, where the nerves come in to create the optic nerve, there's no retinal cells there. So if somebody is in the right condition, they cover one eye, and there's this little type of maneuver that can elicit it, but there's actually a blind spot in each eye. And the brain fills in that blind spot because they don't want, it doesn't want to have the confusion and disturbance of there being like a fairly decent sized blind spot that's out there in the peripheral vision. So, and there's other conditions even, you know, affecting the brain directly uh, where, you know, people can misinterpret information because of um, medical conditions. Um, Even loss of sight can cause the brain to start manufacturing hallucinations. It's a condition um, that people can experience with macular degeneration, or glaucoma, you know, where the brain creates these hallucinations, but at least people have the insight to know that they are hallucinations, they don't believe them, versus schizophrenia, where people believe the hallucinations, they they don't have that insight. So it can go both ways in terms of does perception make the brain? It, It can, and can the brain make perception, certainly, and misperception as well, of course. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that we're only 
consciously able to process a tiny fraction of the information that we take in from our environment. And that leaves the question about how the brain makes up for the rest of what we seem to be perceiving about the world around us. And our brains make shortcuts all the time as well because to be able to process everything that we experience visually, um, for example, that's why we have central vision in our eyes versus peripheral vision. So the most acute information that we're taking in is going to be right in the middle of it's called the macula. And that's where we really can see and read clearly. And everything beyond that is relatively blurred because we couldn't possibly take in all that information at the same time. It would just be too confusing. So we have this filtering mechanism, but it also happens with what you read and what you watch as well. So the brain can only process so much at one time and even take shortcuts. And sometimes those shortcuts get people into problems too. Yeah. I've been noticing in the last several months, I like to read at night as I'm going to sleep. And I find that as I'm reading, I'll start falling asleep. And I'm aware of reading even as I'm falling asleep, except that what I'm reading until I realize that I'm falling asleep is completely different from what I've been actually physically reading. Mm-hmm. So that's your perception working in, taking the lead of what you were reading, and then being creative <laughs> to continue that path until you would probably just completely doze off. Yeah, I've been wondering if there was a way to actually save what I imagine I'm reading. There might be something interesting in there. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's when people wake up from dreams, you have a hard time remembering what you were just dreaming about. Yes. As well, a lot of times. Oh, yeah. It's hard to capture that. Yeah, and with words, it's even harder because it's like long strings, many, many sentences. It's not imagery, which is much easier to remember. Mm -hmm. So basically, we're essentially talking about the brain's relationship to perception of the outer world. How does perceptual intelligence relate to our personal sense of self? I think a lot of people in general don't have high degrees of self-confidence. And because of that, One thing with perceptual intelligence, which can be quite low, is when people start looking to what other people around them are doing for cues on what they should be doing. And this is also called the effect of social influence. So when you see, for example, um, a sale and people are rushing into the sale, even if people in the store that happen to be there weren't even interested in a certain object, if they see a lot of people or they hear a lot of people clamoring over certain types of things, then that can make them interested in, well, I don't want to miss out or, you know, what's happening. And that's where you can see the influence of social interactions on people's decisions. But this is something also that is with especially with um, teenagers, with, you know, experimenting with cigarettes and drugs they're looking towards what their peers are doing for cues, but we see it with adults as well. And there's 
you know, situation that occurs when somebody has had a traffic accident, for example, or somebody collapses from a heart attack in the middle of a public place. People are looking to what other people are doing for cues and what they should do. And in some cases, someone may not even call 911 for excessively amount of time that goes by because they're not sure what to do because they're looking around what other people are doing. So unless there's somebody around that has the confidence that takes charge and says, you call 911 now. So these are things when people don't have confidence in their life about certain areas that it can affect how their perceptual intelligence is. Or if they don't have a prior experience with those kind of situations and they're kind of paralyzed like a deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I've never thought of that as being a confidence issue. Yeah, most people just don't have self-confidence, which is why we see people doing what other people are doing all the time, all the time, and in every area. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm talking about adults now specifically. Right. You're talking about the herd mentality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why there's that chapter specifically talking about how are we different, you know, from wildebeests, (laughs) um, because it's talking about, you know, the herd mentality and social influence examples, but also helps people understand how to take back more control so they can be more confident to make better decisions that they truly want to make that are in their interest, not just because of what other people around them are doing. That's powerful. It is powerful, but I'm wondering, how do we get there considering that we all want to be accepted by our peers? We all want to feel like part of the group. So how do we buck that tide? I think we want to feel part of a group if ultimately it's in our best interest. I mean, nobody wants to be, you know, a hermit, but I think people ultimately want to have decisions that are going to be in line with what they want from, you know, life. And, you know, by not doing that, by not having that confidence, it can cost people money, it can put them in uncompromising situations, it can have health consequences as well. So... I think certainly we all want to be loved and liked, but then there's a balance between going overboard and doing things just because other people are doing them. And again, if it's not in our interest, then I don't think that's really serving serving us well. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, just on that last point, you know, the whole um, Bernie Madoff example mm-hmm. also reflects how really well-respected people like Steven Spielberg, Larry King... Ellie Wiesel, John Malkovich, and others, they lost a lot of money because they were looking to what other people were doing and that were investing in Bernie Madoff. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that we're easily seduced by people who are good at selling things. And we see that with celebrity influence as well. Oh, yeah. And that also evokes this concept called the halo effect. You know, anybody who's admired has what's called the halo effect where they can have influence in an area outside of what they are admired for. And actress Jamie Lee Curtis, who's a very respected actress, ranks high on the Celebrity Trust Index, used to do commercials for Activia yogurt. 
But the problem was the yogurt, the company's claim of improved digestion from the yogurt was false, but because she was a celebrity, she, along with the company, hijacked the perceptual intelligence of a lot of people who rushed out to buy the yogurt, expecting a benefit. And in our society, we're inundated with advertising, and now that we're all online, plugged in pretty much all the time, we're totally inundated by that kind of information and this seductive pulling on on our consciousness all the time. Yeah, there's so much... Now, so many celebrities have social media. It's so accessible. It's like a live version of People magazine that you can interact with. And people feel they have this faux relationship because they can comment on posts and it feels like you're interacting like with a friend. But the halo effect can have severe consequences too. On the other side, the explosion of sexual misconduct stories that really started from the New York Times article that broke the story about Harvey Weinstein and then followed by Louis C.K., you know, they used their halo effect to take advantage of, of women who were blinded by the halo effect because that's what it does. And I think what we're experiencing now with all the tsunami of media stories of sexual misconduct is actually empowering women because there's so much awareness And this is an example of positive social influence because it's like everyone around them, they see so much of people reporting and talking about it that if a woman is in a situation or a younger woman or a younger boy uh, is in a situation that is inappropriate, that they're going to be more comfortable and more confident reporting that behavior and saying no compared to before this period of time that we've had, which I think is going to be looked back as very historic in terms of all this media coverage and this uh, topic. If you're just joining us, My guest is Dr. Brian Boxer-Wachler. He's an ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, and he's the author of this new book, Perceptual Intelligence, The Brain's Secret to Seeing Past Illusion, Misperception, and Self-Deception. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. There's a line in the book about negative thoughts acting like black holes. I wonder if you could explain that a little more. When we understand the impact of our psychology on how our minds work, if you think negatively and you're criticizing yourself, that's that's like it was described in in the book, it's like a black hole because it will become essentially oftentimes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The other side works too, that if you're positive and the chapter on sports talks about athletes who use visualization techniques before they do a competition 
and in training, that has been shown to help improve the odds that you'll be able to achieve what you're visualizing. And that can be applied to anybody in any situation. It's not just athletes that have access to that technique. So if somebody is trying to find a job, if somebody is you know, trying to look for a partner in a relationship or wants to solve a problem, by being in a quiet space and having those positive thoughts, that can work on the other end of the, the black hole negative thoughts. So what you think can really become reality and very important to, to understand how your mindset is because that can make a big difference both positively and negatively. And you also talk about that it also affects our health and well-being. It's been shown that an even Scientific American has written about a woman named Chris Carr as, as a, a great example of when somebody has a health condition and it's a chronic health condition and she actually has an inoperable, untreatable liver tumor, set of tumors in her, in her liver. And she, through her mindset and alternative lifestyle changes that she's made to be more healthy, she's survived and thrived for years beyond what her doctors thought. And so Scientific American acknowledged that there is an important role of positive thinking with our health. And that's what that book helps people understand. So if they do happen to have health problems or chronic health problems, that there are ways to help lead a more fulfilled life with more health too. And even Montel Williams, who wrote the forward for the book, is somebody who for decades has had multiple sclerosis. And in the forward, he shares with people how he's been able to be so successful and productive in life and happy despite having what would otherwise be a quite a debilitating medical condition. And there's an interesting thing that you talk about, which I've also read about, the brain's amazing perceptual adaptability as demonstrated by experiments using special eyeglasses that either flip our vision upside down or overlay colors. Mm-hmm. How does that work? The brain, even though it's a you know, three-pound blob sitting up there at the top, but it's uh, a bit like a muscle, and it can adapt. Just like if you're working out at the gym and you're doing certain weights for some muscle groups, your muscle will hypertrophy and respond and change. The brain will do that too. And there were a series of experiments done uh, on college students. Of course, they always tend to be on college students. And they had glasses that had prisms that flipped the world so it looked upside down. And I remember even hearing about this in my first psychology class when I was at UCLA as a freshman. And I was always fascinated by that. The brain, after a few days, adapted. And what would have, you can imagine, being a completely intolerable way to walk around and and live, the brain adapted and people saw images right side up again. And it was because the brain can have that ability to adapt to reduce confusion and reduce situations that would otherwise be probably, if you look at it from a historical point of view, impeding survival, going back to just basic 
you know, needs of human beings is, in most species is to survive. So that's for the same reason why it fills in the, the blind spot as well that we have, too, all the time. And you quote Picasso as saying, we all know that art is not truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize truth, at least the truth that is given us to understand. The artist must know the manner whereby to convince others of the truthfulness of his lies. And that's using art to manipulate or trick the brain through artifice to see, I guess, the artist's intention of what is true, or or does it go even further into what is true? Yeah, I really love that quote, because Picasso, what he's speaking to is that art is an illusion, and it's an acknowledged illusion, which is why he said it's a lie. But in trying to help people understand what is true and what is reality, it's the justification to use that means to justify the ends. And just like even with the information in the book, we want to help people understand how to tease out what's the truth in situations and in the world around us. So, but an artist is using that to help people understand what the artist, of course, believes what is the truth. Right. So how can we really help others to tease out the truth in a world that is loaded with illusion? And before you actually respond to that, I want to read a quote from Plato, which really addresses this even more. He says, Is there any certainty of human sight and hearing, or is it true that we neither hear nor see anything accurately? And observation by means of the eyes and ears and all the other senses is entirely deceptive. He's speaking to the foundations of what perceptual intelligence is because you can have 10 different people experience or watch or listen to a talk, and you can get potentially 10 different interpretations of that. Now, most times there is an absolute truth, and it's our brain's job, which is a tall order, to try to find that truth. But to help do that, the most important thing in the book explains and helps people understand adapt this is being aware. So when you're aware of certain biases in your own makeup, that helps you identify when your biases may be leading you off the rails. And probably the most important one of that, it would be emotions. Because when people have strong emotions that are tied to beliefs, it becomes really hard in the heat of the battle to recognize that your emotions are driving you in a certain direction. And when you have awareness, then at least you can take a pause and instead of reacting in a way that might be undesirable and regrettable, by taking, in the heat of the moment, three deep breaths before, for example, you respond to something because of how you're perceiving it, that's a helpful technique to do. So having awareness is really one of the key things to helping to tease apart the truth of various situations. So you're recommending 
simple mindful practices to actually augment our ability to separate reality from illusion or at least help us to be more present and responsive to our perceptions of illusion and reality. That's really important. I think the way you just described that's really important. And I'll give you an example of how lack of that can cause some people to potentially do dangerous things. So there's a very funny comedy website called The Onion, and they put out a joke press release stating that Johnson & Johnson, the makers of Visine, have now come out with eye-whitening strips. People started calling the company, asking where they could buy them, and the company said, we don't make them. Then people started calling my office because I had developed an eye-whitening procedure asking my staff, and my staff said, the strips don't exist. Then some people said, well, can I just buy the Crest teeth whitening strips and put those <laughs> in my eyes? My staff said, no, 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 that's dangerous. So this is an example of when emotions are tied to beliefs that it can override rational judgment. And most of the public and most eye doctors even don't recognize how emotional people who have red eyes from sun exposure and sun damage or tan or brown or yellow spots on the whites of their eyes, people like this that have this condition, they get asked questions all the time by others. Are you hungover? Are you on drugs? Are you tired? So it's a real emotional experience that they're having from this chronic, what would normally have been untreatable condition. So that's where the emotions can, without a pause, lead people in a potentially dangerous direction. Mm -hmm. And it can also cloud or, or actually completely prevent us from experiencing our innate intuition, which is another thing that you talk a considerable amount about in your book. And I'd love for you to go into intuition in relation to yeah. perceptual intelligence. So that's the other side of perceptual intelligence. And we have one side, which is critical thinking skills and the analytical, which largely we've been talking about. But on the other side of the spectrum of perceptual intelligence is really the opposite, which is understanding that we have intuitive thoughts that come to us or gut feelings. And that could be important information to help us make better decisions and find more truth that way too. And it's probably a little strange to hear a medical doctor speaking in these terms, but I'm open-minded as we've you know, talked about some of the things earlier in our, in our conversation that and I recognize it's important to be open-minded, but nonetheless, research backs this up that people who follow their intuition oftentimes are making better decisions because of that. And Albert Einstein, Nicholas Tesla, Thomas Edison, the Beatles, Oprah Winfrey, even investor George Soros, all credit their intuition to their success. And studies have shown that when people are gambling or investing, that intuition can help pay off with their returns versus your standard analytical approaches that most gamblers and investors follow. So there's actually science now behind intuition, which is great. So that's the other side of the spectrum of having high perceptual intelligence. And it's not to say always listen to your intuition. 
and do what it's telling you to do, but at least to not discount it flat out and to evaluate what you're getting, what information is coming to you, and then seeing if it would make sense to pursue it further. So it sounds like you're saying that intuition is one of the key elements of perceptual intelligence. It is. It's part of the other side of the equation, an important side. It's a side that I can tell you, and I wrote about this too in in the book, that really had a huge, potentially life-saving effect on me once when I was in college on the speech and debate team. We were coming back from a tournament, and we were driving down the freeway coming from Northern California back to L.A., and we were all packed into a station wagon that an alumnus had donated. And normally I always wore my seatbelt. And we were so packed in there and the seatbelts were totally smushed behind the, there were bench seats actually, and they were smushed between the, the cheeks of the seats and really hard to get to. I just didn't wear my seatbelt. Down the road, we're zipping down the freeway and at some point this feeling hits me like I should put my seatbelt on. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was in a conversation with one of my friends and okay, I'll just, you know, wedge my my palm in between and I finally excavate the seatbelt and I put it on. No more than 30 seconds, we blow a tire and this whole station wagon with all, all the kids in it spins around. It doesn't flip, but it does go off into a ditch. And had I not worn my seatbelt, I would have at the least been thrown around like loose change inside a dryer in the car, and at the worst, I would have been ejected from a window. So I credit, you know, not being injured to my gut feeling in that example. So sometimes people call such things psychic events, and you make a point of distinguishing psychic ability from intuition, and perhaps a lot of what people call being psychic is just our innate intuitive ability. I mean, that's an interesting distinction because I believe when somebody's psychic, like they've studied people in the government where the government was interested enough to spend taxpayers' money on running experiments of having people who were psychics in one room, completely separated, very controlled environment, and then having them identify what was in another room. And with some accuracy that was inexplicable. So to me, I interpret that as being having psychic abilities versus intuition and gut feelings without that predictability. Because to me, there's a level of predictability when somebody has psychic abilities like that or as a medium, as the more modern nomenclature would be, versus a gut feeling coming to you about something that you weren't really necessarily focused on. And and I don't discount that some people have that ability, for sure. In fact, I believe some people have that ability. But, it's again, it's it's in that realm where hardcore science doesn't like things that aren't easily detected. Sort of like before we knew there was ultraviolet radiation from the sun that could be detected by equipment, psychic abilities falls into the realm back then before we could measure UV rays coming from the sun. There was maybe some evidence of it, but it couldn't be tangibly measured. And so I I think in general, the science gets uncomfortable with that area where they can't 
put their finger on something and measure it and see it, detect it. Just like we can't detect the soul of a body. Mm -hmm. But my personal belief, and you were talking about a quote we had you know, earlier from the book about Plato, you know, Plato back then wrote about how the soul is immortal in his um, book of uh, the death of Socrates, trying to use argumentation, reasoning to prove that the soul is immortal, but yet we don't have the science to detect the soul. Although, personally, I believe it exists. And you write about near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences, which point to a realm of human experience that is beyond our current ability to measure things, although we can measure what isn't happening. Like, for example, Dr. Eben Alexander's near-death experience where he was clinically 100% brain dead during a long period of his near-death experience, and yet he was still able to recall his experience in great detail. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the big arguments of denial of the nature of near-death experiences is that it's just brain activity. Mm-hmm. And in, in this case, it's physically proven that the brain was not functioning at all. Mm-hmm. And there are cases like that that are hard for science to explain, and he certainly wasn't well-received by his colleagues as a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon who came back to report what heaven was and, and meeting you know, God in his interpretation and description of, of that entity. But there are some interesting things that counterbalance is somebody really, you know, having a experience in the afterlife like that. And before I describe that, I, I love Woody Allen's quote, which is, I don't believe in the afterlife, but I am bringing a change of underwear. <laughs> so there's a woman, a psychiatrist who passed away, who had studied 20,000 people who had reported near-death experiences. And she found that there is a very strong religious tilt towards these experiences and that the reports when people were resuscitated after however means they had clinically died were consistent with what their religious upbringings were. And I think for somebody who's had so much experience with so many people, 20,000 people, there seems to be a cultural influence or religious influence on what people report, which then leads to the question, is there a customizable afterlife for each person based on what their religious background is? Or are people perceiving an experience to be consistent with what their own religious beliefs are? Now, there is one case, though, that is really hard to explain which was of a Dutch patient, and it's in the book, in the chapter about near-death experiences. A Dutch patient who is in cardiac arrest and was eventually resuscitated, and the nurses and doctors couldn't find where the dentures were. Well, he had seen from above during the commotion of the CPR where the dentures were when they were taken out of his mouth and where they were placed, and he was resuscitated, pointed out where the dentures were, and in fact, that's where they were. And that's a hard one to explain away. 
Right. There's lots of experiences like that of people rising out of their bodies and actually traveling down the corridors into other rooms and describing events and conversations that were then later verified as actually mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's, there seems to be a lot of evidence to support that. And, and again, it could be there's some people where they're having a true, and we don't know this because we can't measure it, where they're having a true near-death experience and they come back, and others where interpret it, it, the perception is because of how they were raised or their, their religious beliefs as to whether they report seeing the Virgin Mary or not, depending on what type of Christianity they are, for example, which is what the psychiatrists found to be also very consistent. So it's not necessarily 100% wrong or 100% right. It could be proportional depending on some things which we still can't measure at this point. And if the brain is physiologically dead at the time of those experiences, then where are those, where's that imagery coming from? Stuff. Well, there's, there's a period of time when, before somebody's clinically dead, that their brain is, is having all, a, and it's been shown, the science has shown a tremendous amount of electrical activity that spikes mm -hmm. in the process of dying. There's also very high levels of carbon dioxide in the blood. So it's possible that during that transition period, there could be images, visualizations that are occurring that are being created. And then when consciousness is regained, those can be called upon, you know, rather quickly. So just like people can still remember after they were resuscitated, if they had no brain activity for a period of time, they can still remember their names, who they are. Most of their memories are intact for the most part, unless there was an infarct in the part of the brain responsible for that memory. People don't come back as a blank slate with complete amnesia. Right. You also talk about an interesting phenomenon called blindsight, which I've also read about. I remember reading about a young man who lost his vision, and yet he used to ride his bicycle down the road blind, and yet he described being able to see. Mm -hmm. How does that work? And is that an example of the brain as a muscle adapting to other sensory perception, or, or what? It is. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's a, it's a great example, because... Our brain can handle, let's just say, it has a capacity like a gas tank, and it's full at 100% of sensory information. And if we lose one of our senses, there's more room in the gas tank for another sense to fill up the deficit. And it could be in hearing, if somebody loses their vision, or it could be in sensation, being able to detect waves of energy from inanimate objects, possibly. So I think that blind sight, in the case you described, and there's another case of even a patient walking down a hall where the researchers littered the hall with various objects and was able to slowly maneuver around each object, even though being documented to have absolute, complete blindness. So there, are, I think there's upregulation of senses when one sense is lacking. 
So we only have about five minutes left. Maybe get into the realm of how perceptual intelligence fits into the realm of sexuality, particularly in relation to our society's concepts about it and mm-hmm. attitudes. Yeah, let's touch on that because there's that chapter on sex and what people have a lot of times a hard time with is if they're never exposed to people other than their own community or their friends in their own social sphere, it's just like if someone's never traveled and traveling is one of the best educations I think that people can do because you learn there's other people living life very happily that are very different than yours. And it's the same thing when it comes to having high perceptual intelligence regarding sexuality. And if people are never exposed or um, therefore they're usually, but not always, not open-minded to other types of sexuality than their own, then that's a source of misunderstanding, misperception. And, you know, we see this all the time with various orientations and that's, you know, part of when you're recognizing that about yourself and you have that awareness, which is one of the key things to helping to open up perceptual intelligence for people is having awareness of what is limiting or what might be biasing you. And you have the confidence to go against what other people in your community or your social circles are thinking of, that can help you literally become more enlightened about sexuality other than your own. So that's one aspect of it. But there's another part of it too, which is how do people maintain a satisfying long-term sexual relationship with the partner? And I don't think we really have enough time to go into that, but there are definitely things that can be done to maintain what's really important for long-term you know, relationship with a partner or a spouse as well. So that's what the chapter helps people understand as well. And you cover a lot of territory in this book and give a lot of suggestions of how we can improve our perceptual intelligence. And in our final minute, Do you have any final words on how we can, in general, increase our perceptual intelligence? Being aware of what is making you move in a certain direction and what are the biases or factors that are responsible for that are important. And once you have that you can be more critical and have more critical thinking skills. But you can also be more receptive to when your intuition and gut feelings come to you as well. And that's the balance, is having, knowing how to strike that balance between relying on critical thinking or relying on intuition and gut feelings. And that's what the information in the book helps people better understand about themselves. So ultimately they can have what they want in life whether it's better job, better relationships, uh, better sex, more success, and just more happiness in general. Well, I've enjoyed this very much, and I want to thank you so much for your time. 
My pleasure. And, you know, I'll just mention the book is available on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. And is there a website connected to that? People can go to our website, which is perceptualintelligence.com, or if people wanted to look at our practice website regarding the conditions I treat, keratoconus or the eye discolorations or anything else, um, our practice website is boxerwalkler.com. Okay, so again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, you had really great probing questions. I really appreciated that. Well, thank you, and have a great day. Okay, you too now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Dr. Brian Boxer Walkler. He's a practicing ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, and his new book is Perceptual Intelligence, The Brain's Secret to Seeing Past Illusion, Misperception, and Self-Deception. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Coming up in about two minutes, a wonderful, wonderful talk by Sandy Newton that you won't want to miss. Trust me and stay with us. otherness. When I first heard this theme, I thought, well, embracing otherness is embracing myself. And the journey to that place of understanding and acceptance has been an interesting one for me. 
And it's given me an insight into the whole notion of self, which I think is worth sharing with you today. We each have a self, but I don't think that we're born with one. You know how newborn babies believe they're part of everything? They're not separate. Well, that fundamental sense of oneness is lost on us very quickly. It's like that initial stage is over. Oneness, infancy, unformed, primitive. It's no longer valid or real. What is real is separateness. And at some point in early babyhood, the idea of self starts to form. Our little portion of oneness is given a name, is told all kinds of things about itself. And these details, opinions, and ideas become facts, which go towards building ourselves, our identity. And that self becomes the vehicle for navigating our social world. But the self is a projection based on other people's projections. Is it who we really are? or who we really want to be, or should be. So this whole interaction with self and identity was a very difficult one for me growing up. The self that I attempted to take out into the world was rejected over and over again. And my panic at not having a self that fit, and the confusion that came from myself being rejected created anxiety, shame, and hopelessness, which kind of defined me for a long time. But in retrospect, the destruction of myself was so repetitive that I started to see a pattern. The self changed, got affected, broken, destroyed, but another one would evolve. Sometimes stronger, sometimes hateful, sometimes not wanting to be there at all. The self was not constant. And how many times would myself have to die before I realized that it was never alive in the first place? I grew up on the coast of England in the 70s. My dad is white from Cornwall, and my mum is black from Zimbabwe. Even the idea of us as a family was challenging to most people. But nature had its wicked way, and brown babies were born. But from about the age of five, I was aware that I didn't fit. I was the black atheist kid in the all-white Catholic school run by nuns. I was an anomaly. And myself was, was rooting around for definition, trying to, to plug in. Because the self likes to fit, to see itself replicated, to belong. That confirms its existence and its importance. And it is important. It has an extremely important function. Without it, we literally can't interface with others. We can't hatch plans and climb that stairway of popularity, of success. But my skin color wasn't right. My hair wasn't right. My history wasn't right. Myself became defined by otherness which meant that in that social world, I didn't really exist. And I was other before being anything else, even before being a girl. I was a noticeable nobody. Another world was opening up around this time, performance and dancing. That nagging dread of selfhood didn't exist when I was dancing. 
I'd literally lose myself. And I was a really good dancer. I would put all my emotional expression into my dancing. I could be in the movement in a way that I wasn't able to be in my real life, in myself. And at 16, I stumbled across another opportunity and I earned my first acting role in a film. I can hardly find the words to describe the peace I felt when I was acting. My dysfunctional self could actually plug in to another self, not my own, and it felt so good. It was the first time that I existed inside a fully functioning self, one that I controlled, that I steered, that I gave life to. But the shooting day would end, and I'd return to my gnarly, awkward self. By 19, I was a fully-fledged movie actor, but still searching for definition. I applied to read anthropology at university. Dr. Phyllis Lee gave me my interview, and she asked me, how would you define race? Well, I thought I had the answer to that one. And I said, skin color. So biology, genetics, she said. Because Tandy, that's not accurate because there's actually more genetic difference between a black Kenyan and a black Ugandan than there is between a black Kenyan and, say, a white Norwegian. Because we all stem from Africa, so in Africa, there's been more time to create genetic diversity. In other words, race has no basis in biological or scientific fact. On the one hand, result, right? <laughs> On the other hand, my definition of self just lost a huge chunk of its credibility. But what was credible, what is biological and scientific fact, is that we all stem from Africa. In fact, from a woman called mitochondrial Eve who lived 160,000 years ago. And race is an illegitimate concept which ourselves have created based on fear and ignorance. Strangely, these revelations didn't cure my low self-esteem. That feeling of otherness, my desire to disappear was still very powerful. I had a degree from Cambridge. I had a thriving career, but myself was a car crash. And I wound up with bulimia, and on a therapist's couch. And of course I did. I still believed myself was all I was. I still valued self-worth above all other worth. And what was there to suggest otherwise? We've created entire value systems and a physical reality to support the worth of self. Look at the industry for self-image and the jobs it creates, the revenue it turns over. We'd be right in assuming that the self is an actual living thing, but it's not. It's a projection which our clever brains create in order to cheat ourselves from the reality of death. But there is something that can give the self ultimate and infinite connection. And that thing is oneness, our essence. The self's struggle for authenticity and definition will never end unless it's connected to its creator, 
to you and to me. And that can happen with awareness. Awareness of the reality of oneness and the projection of selfhood. For a start, we can think about all the times when we do lose ourselves. It happens when I dance, when I'm acting. I'm earthed in my essence and myself is suspended. In those moments, I'm connected to everything. The ground, the air, the sounds, the energy from the audience. All my senses are alert and alive in much the same way as an infant might feel, that feeling of oneness. And when I'm acting a role, I inhabit another self and I give it life for a while. Because when the self is suspended, so is divisiveness and judgment. And I've played everything from vengeful ghost in the time of slavery to secretary of state in 2004. And no matter how other these selves might be, they're all related in me. And I honestly believe the key to my success as an actor and my progress as a person has been the very lack of self that used to make me feel so anxious and insecure. I always wondered why I could feel others' pain so deeply, why I could recognize the somebody in the nobody. It's because I didn't have a self to get in the way. I thought I lacked substance, and the fact that I could feel others meant that I had nothing of myself to feel. The thing that was a source of shame was actually a source of enlightenment. And when I realized and really understood that myself is a projection and that it has a function, a funny thing happened. I stopped giving it so much authority. I give it its due. I take it to therapy. I've become very familiar with its dysfunctional behavior. But I'm not ashamed of myself. In fact, I respect myself and its function. And over time, and with practice, I've tried to live more and more from my essence. And if you can do that, incredible things happen. I was in Congo in February, dancing and celebrating with women who've survived the destruction of their selves in literally unthinkable ways. Destroyed because other brutalized, psychopathic selves all over that beautiful land a fueling ourselves addiction to iPods, pads, and bling, which further disconnect ourselves from ever feeling their pain, their suffering, their death. Because, hey, if we're all living in ourselves and mistaking it for life, then we're devaluing and desensitizing life. And in that disconnected state, yeah, we can build factory farms with no windows destroy marine life, and use rape as a weapon of war. So here's a note to self. The cracks have started to show in our constructed world, and oceans will continue to surge through the cracks, and oil, and blood, rivers of it. Crucially, we haven't been figuring out how to live in oneness with the earth and every other living thing. We've just been insanely trying to figure out how to live with each other, billions of each other, 
Only we're not living with each other. Our crazy selves are living with each other and perpetuating an epidemic of disconnection. Let's live with each other and take it a breath at a time. If we can get under that heavy self, light a torch of awareness and find our essence, our connection to the infinite and every other living thing. We knew it from the day we were born. Let's not be freaked out by our bountiful nothingness. It's more a reality than the ones ourselves have created. Imagine what kind of existence we can have if we honor inevitable death of self, appreciate the privilege of life, and marvel at what comes next. Simple awareness is where it begins. Thank you for listening. And that was Fandy Newton. Her first name is spelt T-H-A-N-D-I-E. Newton. From a TED Talk from 2011. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. that's about it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening i'm tony epstein until next time have a wonderful week this show is brought to you by goddard college community radio for more information check out wgdr.org